0: Hello, hello, what's up, what's good, bonjour, how? welcome to the Any Given Runway Show, I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green, Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures, by highlighting some of the most interesting, adventurous, creative people in the world, everyone has a story, each person is a scholar, we have a great 2020 compilation recap episode, I don't think I ever said all that a name, it's a compilation episode, recap episode, anyway, two snippets of past interviews, two of my favorite interviews, both featuring Adventurers today. First up, we have South African climber, author, and writer Kathy O'Dowd, followed by British explorer, adventurer, and author as well. It seems like if you're an adventurer, you have to be an author because we want to hear the stories that you experience. Charlie Walker is our second guest. Kathy O'Dowd is the first woman in the world to climb the world's highest mountain from both its north and south sides. Her first ascent of Everest happened in the midst of the chaotic events that form the basis of the true story find the Hollywood movie Everest and she grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, has a master's degree in journalism and has written a book about her Everest experiences called Just for the Love of It. She's currently living in Andorra and most importantly has a gorgeous cat named Cleo which was her co-star in the episode she was featured in back in June for episode 91. Let's go ahead and bring back Kathy O'Dowd. What does it mean to you to be the first woman to accomplish this extraordinary feat?
1: Honestly, not a great deal. Uh oh, but it's been very helpful. Yeah. So explain that. I'm gonna give you the 30-second version okay. that got me from yeah. rock climbing university to Everest. Yeah. Uh bigger rock climbing, curious. Yeah. Then like, oh okay, I wonder what mountaineering's like, curious. Central Africa, uh South America, because that's what we could afford. Uh, A year in the Alps, between degrees, and then I just wanted to go to the Himalaya. No money, didn't know people at Himalayan level climbing. How? And then uh, newspaper, front page, first South African Everest expedition. And of course, they're all men. And then there's this thing, oh, they're having a competition. Like, really? competition to find a girl <laughs> to join the team as if she's like a flag that's going to be taken to yeah. yeah. So yeah, late twenties university postgraduate, like this is sexist. Yeah. And like, I don't care. <laughs> they're going to take a short list of sex, climb Kilimanjaro as a selection expedition. It was actually early reality television before we were even using the word. It was like, I bet I could make the six because they're just not that many candidates. And then I'd get a free trip to Kilimanjaro. You know, how bad is that? Yeah. And so I got my trip to Kilimanjaro and I got selected for the Everest expedition. Uh, the men were not particularly happy to see me. It was a very um, difficult expedition in terms of the team dynamic. And then it was a very difficult season. Yeah. Uh, but I, Never expected to get to the top. It was just, it's a Himalayan expedition, I'm going as an apprentice. You know, before commercial guiding, that's how you learn to climb. Yeah. Uh, but I got to the top. And uh, then the second Everest expedition, I didn't mean to go back to Everest. Uh, so there's a story behind that. But for the sake of time, we'll, we'll skip that bit of the story. I was aware, and then the second exp- Everest expedition, we failed. Yeah. So, you know, my 100% success rate just became a 50% success rate. Uh, So when we went back the third time, I was aware that no woman had done it from both sides. But firstly, there's no guarantee you're going to get to the top. A lot of things can go wrong out of your control. Secondly, from a mountaineering point of view, it's like, meh, it doesn't, it's not. Like nobody had bothered going around to the other side you know, for a second shot. Most people are, are one and done. So, you know, I'm not going to walk into a group of climbers going like, "Guess who I am? Yeah. Guess what I did?" No, 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 no. But let's be honest. um, I was right at the beginning, I guess, of the new, the modern age of kind of, um, not quite what the word is. I've ended up as a motivational speaker. That's how yeah. I made and there's no doubt for my commercial clients, first woman in the world. Ooh. Mm. And they're not quite sure what the rest of the sentence means, mm. but it's got me in the door. And then once I'm in the door, I do a damn good speech. And, you know, then I'm very comfortable with the quality of, of what I do for them. But so, so yeah, that record is a little... Yeah.
0: So So how do you balance that then? Because what you've done is an amazing feat. And like you said, that part of the sentence people know and they'll introduce you for. But at the same time, I'm sure that you just want to be known as a climber. And probably after a while it like gets maybe redundant saying, you know, first woman this, first woman that. And there was so much maybe hesitancy, like you mentioned with the with the male climbers on the on the on the expedition as well. So how do you balance that of just being a regular old climber? But also people coming up to me like myself who reached out to you because of this feat. So it must be a difficult balance.
1: Yes. I mean that's not <laughs> whine about this too much (laughs) because you know that thing that i did uh has given me a 25 year career as a motivational speaker you know spoken in over 40 countries i've never held a real job since (laughs) so i've got to live a life where i spend about half the time speaking and the other half of the time traveling around the world climbing skiing you know so yeah let's not complain about this uh but I think, I suspect, like any athlete who did something big young and then is like, the rest of my life might feel like a bit of a come down. It's probably worse if you won your Olympic gold at 18 or something. That's <laughs> not you supposed to do for the next 50 years. I mean, the advantage of climbing is that although from the outside, Everest can seem like, ooh, that's got to be the ultimate, it isn't. It's just the highest. Yeah. You know, it's not the most beautiful or the most difficult or... there there are a hundred subtle differences. And I'm not pursuing the most difficult, you know, as in, once I've done something, the next thing isn't worth it unless it's even harder. Honestly, people die within about a decade if they're on that treadmill with with mountaineering. You know, it really gets risky at the cutting edge of this. Uh, I'm just curious. So... Um, once I'd done Everest like, well, that was fun. Um, you know, what else can I do in the world of mountaineering? And I've gone off and done ski mountaineering and multi-pitch rock climbing and long ridge traverses and dog sledding in Norway and sea kayaking in Finland. And, um, now I'm doing a lot of canyoning. Um, it's all kind of mountain mostly, maybe not the sea kayaking, mountain related risk management, uh, I don't think I'm pursuing an edge, this idea that you're, you're I don't know, dicing with death. Like, yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> you're taking a risky environment and then trying to manage your way safely through it. And I find the whole process of managing risk interesting. But I have every intention of, of coming home. So, so Everest's been an incredibly useful stepping stone, uh, but I never thought it was an ultimate achievement. I've occasionally felt a bit like it's a bit of an anchor, but then I'm also very grateful for everything that it's brought me. So you know, you balance the two.
0: I am blown away by what you just said. As far as you were fascinated by the opportunity to manage risk, and I, I, I that's been replaying in my head ever since you said that because it's just a fascinating. And you mentioned also earlier about the curiosity that it's not the tallest mountain or the most difficult. It's just the this lifestyle of curiosity, and you're just interested in the world. And curiosity is one of one of my favorite words. And I just, I, it's such an admirable quality in yours. And I think that's why you've been able to continue to find so many things because you're not burned out because of your success of the tallest mountain. You're like, let me go find something else to do because you're just perpetually curious. So I just, I love that. I'm fascinated by it, and I'm going to keep playing that in my mind about, about managing risk. I think that's awesome. You were in in, in Everest in '96, a year that lives in infamy in as far as in, when it comes to climbers. It was a tragic season in Everest that year. What do you remember about that devastating blizzard?
1: Okay, um, I'm afraid I tend to do this. I'm gonna give you a couple of caveats. Okay. The most tragic season in the history of Everest, the best way for a very tragic season is to make sure enough people survive that they come home and write best-selling books and do lots of TV interviews. For sure. So this is not actually the most tragic thing that's ever happened in the Himalaya. It's just when really tragic ones, where everybody's dead, nobody comes home to tell a story. So it's really helpful when a very prominent journalist comes home and writes a very well-written uh, but slightly exaggerated book, sure. uh, and some pretty famous people got caught up in the disaster, and yeah. some of them lived and some of them didn't. All of that. Now, now you're beginning to have the setup. For something to be labeled the most tragic incident yeah
0: and I, and I will agree I think that's a great way to set it up first to, to the, the casual person that's the first thing they think of is ninety six but but you're right. how convenient is it that there was a journalist on there? you know had it been a month earlier, a different thing, we might not have ever associated that as well
1: there's actually a second element to it um, that I find interesting twenty five years later. It was the first year that anybody ran a website from Basecamp. We were only about 18 months into websites being a thing for the general public. Mm, okay. So it was the first year teams had websites at Basecamp using satellite phones. So it was the first time media had ever had direct access to a tragedy as it unfolded. Yeah, okay. And that meant that this was the first big mountain disaster to go viral in the, you know, what was the beginning of the modern media age. Yeah. And at the time, we didn't, you know, none of it. Of what was coming? But looking back, uh, that part I think of why that storm is just so etched into I don't know pop culture. Yeah, um, I think the most interesting observation I can make about that storm is close in. It's the mountaineering equivalent of, of you know what soldiers would call the fog of war. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is, when you're actually in it, you've got no idea what is going. And that does two things. Obviously, it means that there's a huge level of uncertainty, which may be very stressful. But we do tend to be mountain climbers because we quite like managing uncertainty. (laughs) So yeah, we're not necessarily the people who are going to be utterly, I don't know, frozen with fear by uncertainty. And but you also don't know all the details. So a lot of stuff in retrospect, like, oh my God, there are five people out there dying. We didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I think about mountaineers is they're mostly fairly pragmatic because you know, the kind of person who has hysterics and breaks down is hopeless on a mountain. So climbers tend to be phlegmatic and pragmatic. So, you know, when people, they're saying like, we've got team members unaccounted for, the first thing you assume is they're probably back at the Camp 4 tents and their batteries are dead. Seriously, keeping your radio batteries charged, and these days your satellite phone batteries, is the biggest problem because half the time your know, families are panicking somewhere at home and the guys in the expedition are A-OK, the battery's dead. So we don't necessarily jump to the assumption that everybody's dying. Yeah. Yeah. Realistically, they're probably back in their tents, exhausted asleep, and they've run out of battery. So it actually took a long time to really get the gravity. Some of the things we only found out months later. Um, So I think, again, it's less, I don't know, dramatically Mm -hmm. fearful in the moment than people assume when they get to read all the detail in a single go afterwards.
0: It seems like it was, it was the perfect storm for it to be like you mentioned in kind of the pop culture aspect of it with so much things going on. And I think the, the observation on the internet was a, was, a was a key point there. And I really enjoyed how you said, climbers we, we, we kind of expect the uncertainty you know <laughs> and i'm sure if the mountain had no uncertainty if the mountain was there's no weather and it was the same height it wouldn't have that same allure it's almost like it's not necessarily the danger but it's the added potential challenges that make it more exciting it seems
1: exactly which is really interesting because in the modern era say everest climbing has split into two totally different streams. the one is commercial and those are the people. There's now a fixed line from base camp to the summit. Mm-hmm. So there's almost, I mean, there's obviously always a little bit of uncertainty because it's a yep. huge mountain and there's weather, uh, and also things can happen to your own body that you yeah. won't expect. But beyond that, you know, clip into the line at base camp. Follow the line. You're in a queue of people. There are people around you. There's a guide who's done this every year for the last 10 years, yeah. telling you exactly where to go, exactly where to camp, a Sherpa, carrying all your kit. So when people say that they've conquered Everest in, in, under this thing, what they've done is completely, as far as they can, eliminate uncertainty. And then they've outsourced all judgment to the guide. And they've, all they've kept for themselves is the physicality of pulling up the line. And a lot of people who call themselves climbers would tell you that they would not be seen dead on Everest uh, under the setup under the because they don't want to outsource the judgment to somebody else. That's why we do it. I mean, one of the, the great moments of, of any day in the mountains, whether it's a single day or an expedition, is that point where you look at your friend or your team and go like, okay, now what? Uh, <clears throat> what do we know? What are we trying to do? What have we learned? How has this changed from the plan we had before we, we left the car, left the country? And what's the new plan going to be? And it's that process of working out the plan, or the new plan, the change plan, in the middle of this wild environment. That's part of the fun. I don't want to outsource that to a guide.
0: I don't want to outsource the uncertainty to a guide. What a, what a profound and thought-provoking statement. And I'm, I'm, I want to talk more about that. Why is uncertainty, and this is a little more, little more abstract, but why is uncertainty as a general thing, not just in mountaineering, why is uncertainty beneficial for, for life? <laughs>
1: yeah. Life does a really bad job at being predictable. <laughs> No, it really does. And also as humans, I think we're possibly not terribly good at doing long-term prognostication. We're always really kind of imagining the past back into the future. And the future is often very different. Um, So I've always felt that in what I do in the outdoor space, more important than chasing goals, say summits conquered, to use the, the, the pop culture phrase, is to chase skill and experience. Because, so skills can be, is, is often formal training, all sorts of things navigation, uh, weather prediction, um, avalanche awareness, crevasse rescue. Yeah, there are all sorts of skills, depending on what sport we're talking about. And then experience is about you applying those skills uh, in the real situation. So again, going with a guide doesn't get you experience, not really. And uh, it doesn't really allow you to apply your skills. Um, Half the time with guides, you don't even realize the decisions they're making because you're not seeing the the factors at play. Um, And what I like about building on skill and experience Is that when you then end up in a situation where nothing's gone to plan, you can look at each other and go, okay, we we didn't expect this, but we've done stuff before, we've done training, we've been in possibly equivalent situations. Let's work it out. And that process of working it out is interesting. And that's why for a lot of people, mountains are success means you stood on the summit. If you didn't stand on the summit, you failed.
0: Mm.
1: standing on the summit is the cherry on the cake. It's great. You know, it's better when you get to stand on the summit. But there are always two goals. The objective in mountaineering, say, at the summit, and coming home alive, uninjured, you know, depending on how serious the objective, kind of what, what level of, of risk you'll take. And sometimes you're in a situation where you go like the summit, you've got to let the summit go. Coming home isn't always easy. It's not like a marathon. You can't just sit down on the pavement and pull out your mobile and call a taxi. You've got to get yourself all the way back down the mountain, possibly in bad weather conditions if that's the problem, possibly with an injured teammate if that's the problem. So you're probably having to get down in a much more difficult setup than you expected. And that's stressful but interesting. and when you've done it when you've turned away from a summit when you've been in difficult conditions and when you've worked your way out of those difficult conditions safely back to the bottom that's both satisfying and definitely builds your confidence so the next time you can go out and it lets you it lets you plan bigger things so the the biggest thing i ever was part of was the mazena ridge of nanga Parbat. so nanga Parbat's an eight thousand meter peak Uh, The Mizeno Ridge had been attempted, but no one had ever managed to climb it all the way to the summit, so it's a new route, and I was invited to join a team. um, I knew two two of the guys in a five-guy team, Uh, and they'd been there before, two of them. And to try and climb a route that's never been climbed before. You do all your research and you do as much planning as you can, and you predict what you think you can predict. But you also accept that your plan is kind of wishful thinking. It's well-informed wishful thinking. And there are things where you say, literally as part of the plan, hard to tell. We'll work it out when we get there. But you can only put your hand up to do that if you come with considerable skill and considerable experience.
0: Well, you know, as the old saying, right? You want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And I think that's definitely, applicable to hear and the part where you said the successes and not necessarily the summit but just the overall successful journey gives you confidence i can just imagine so many times in your life you probably have done other endeavors and you're back of your mind you're like i've done something way harder than this and then you just you cruise through so i'm it's just the amazing gosh that's so fascinating i love your philosophy in 98 on your first north side summit there was a very harrowing experience as well what uh, what was that situation
1: Yes, that was close to one of the most difficult situations you can encounter uh, in the mountains. So in this case, north side of Everest, uh, we've actually had a a very good expedition to that point. And we've reached the top camp. The top camp is high on the north, 8,300 metres. We've a team of four. Uh, We leave late. If we'd left an hour earlier, none of this would have happened because. It it still would have been dark. Yeah, yeah. So we leave leave an hour or so late. We leave at like 2 a.m. rather than midnight. And um, you climb up the top section of the giant north face of Everest, and you're trying to get onto the ridge. And then along the ridge there are then three rock steps, the first, the second, and the third step. And these are the trickiest parts. But the rest of the ridge isn't much fun. It's very steep. The rock is shattered. So if you imagine you're stepping on sort of um, shattered edges, ball bearings, and, and then you've got these little cliffs of rock, and then you've got these lines of ice and snow in between them, so, and you have to wear crampons because of the ice, but loose rock and crampons isn't much fun, and it's just hard. Yeah. And as we approached the ridge, and then the beginning of the first step, I saw off to one side what I thought was a body. Now it happens. Places a giant deep freeze. The bodies don't rot. Um, they they kind of look as if they're sleeping. Mm. And your know, mind, personal philosophy, in the few bodies I've seen, is empty suitcases. The person is gone. However, that works. What is lying there is is the empty suitcase. Yeah. Uh, but this one moved. And they don't normally move. <laughs> so I was in front, and I went over to have a look. And I found a woman, which firstly is unusual, certainly back then it was still very male-dominated, and uh, clearly in a very bad way. She was lying in the most horrible position of her back bent as if she'd fallen over backwards. She'd pulled her jacket off, she'd pulled her gloves off, uh, her entire face was frostbitten. Uh, so yeah, this is a woman who's in deep, deep trouble uh but then she spoke like oh okay hang on maybe maybe this is better than i thought uh but it turned out that she could only say three things she had some sense that somebody was there but there wasn't she wasn't really she wasn't in control in, mentally any longer at all. She couldn't focus, she couldn't reply, she couldn't hold a conversation. She just had three phrases uh, that she repeated over and over, as if they were kind of the last thoughts. I, I don't know. Um, it was uh, difficult. So what do you do? Yeah. Um, a quick rundown, because this is you know, a complicated topic. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, People think, well, you rescue her. Okay, there is no 911. There is no mountain rescue. So let's face it, it's just you. Mm-hmm. It's all of us. Um, can you give her oxygen? We're not carrying a spare mask. So if we do, somebody has to go off oxygen. We're using oxygen. We're not acclimatized to be at something like, uh, let me try and get this right. between 8,500 and 8,600 meters um, without oxygen. Secondly, uh, when you climb with oxygen, you trickle it. I mean, the stuff is precious, the bottles are heavy. And that trickle is enough for a fit climber to plod very slowly up the mountain. It's not enough for somebody who's dying. In that case, you've got to crank the thing right up and then you will run through the bottle in 30, 40 minutes. We only have sort of two spare bottles. So you could crank through all your oxygen um, and still have done almost nothing. Uh, So the next problem is she cannot stand. She can't even sit upright. She just plops like a rag doll. So it's one thing to rescue someone if they can sort of stand on their feet mm-hmm. because then you put an arm yeah over the shoulders of two rescuers and they sort of stumble down the minute you have to carry them okay she, she's a woman but we're still talking um, 60 kilos dead weight we have no stretches yeah um you know, and, and, and the guys back in the city who say, yeah, yeah, fireman's lift. Yeah, dude, you can't. You
0: <laughs> can't. Straight up. Yeah.
1: somebody over your shoulder and just see how that feels. And then, of course, what we're doing is coming down this incredibly treacherous field of ice and loose rock. Um, and so the trouble, you know, this is where people in the city get really uncomfortable. But the bottom line is you can be sitting next to someone and know that she will be dead before you can get her anywhere that will save her life yeah. because it will take so long to get her anywhere. Um, so then now, now you're on to stage two, um, which is your instinct is, well, you know, these are the last hours of her life. Jesus Christ, stay with her, which is fine unless you're getting hypothermic from cold, which we were. We're on the north side. We're in the shadow. Uh, it was a cold day. There was wind. And, you know, your only source of heat is your own body. In climbing, we pretty much have to keep moving uh, to stay warm. And I've never been that cold. You know, it wasn't just, you know, shivering. Or I, I actually had this strange sensation that I could feel the organs in my chest cavity and they were grey. I don't know why, but that's what my mind served up. Yeah. And it's like, I am losing my core cool body heat. Yeah. If I don't start moving soon, I'm not going to be able to stand up. Um, and, yeah. So um, so we left. Yeah. I went down. I, I couldn't just, you know, obviously it made no difference to her whether we went down or we went up, but I couldn't re-find my, my love for climbing. I, I couldn't just walk. and refocus on climbing, it's like, I'm done. I want to be off this mountain, I want to be safely back down again. Yeah, it should be said that her climbing team was herself and her husband, no oxygen, no Sherpas, no teammates, no radios. They'd spent far too long getting to the sun. They'd they'd spent several nights at 8,300 meters, no oxygen. They then taken an incredibly long time to get to the summit because they were seen by telescope. So we do know when they were on the summit. And she couldn't get back down. Yeah. He, he collapsed, he left her to look for help and he fell off the mountain and was only found three years later. She was trying to be the first American woman to climb Everest without oxygen. So they had chosen you know, a pretty high risk way of climbing the mountain.
0: Well, and and I know it's a very complicated issue, and I think what worsens the issue is, like you mentioned earlier, is the fact that so many people are are attempting this more as as tourists than as actually seasoned climbers. And there's an inherent risk climbing mountains, and I think most climbers will agree that it is difficult and dangerous, and just a incredible incredible experience for you. How did you? Um
1: Can I just push back on one thing? Because I'm going to bet that half the audience has gone like, oh, yeah,
0: yeah, of course, no, no
1: morality above eight thousand meters. It's not true. Climbers help other climbers. Yeah. Now, commercial guides and clients, that's a little different. The client <laughs> has a contract to get his customers to the summit. The clients have paid a great deal of money for themselves to get to the summit.
0: Yeah.
1: It's not quite the same setup. So I'm, I'm not talking about guides or clients. Yeah. The climbers help other climbers. But remember what I said about pragmatic? Yeah. We choose to go to places where there's no rescue. This is not calling the Swiss helicopter on your mobile phone, which is what we do in the Alps. It is entirely possible that you can be in a situation where the person is not yet dead and you cannot save her life. We don't have the tools, the resources, the people, the capability. And we we all kind of know that when when we go out there. So it's not that climbers don't care. It's that there are situations where you can care and it doesn't
0: help. Well, and I think the very first part of that sentence was we choose. We choose as climbers. It is an active choice. And I think that's the, probably the most important thing to remember on that. You mentioned you, you descended because at that point, your appeal, your zest for, for, for finishing the summit attempt was kind of gone. How'd you, how'd you find that love again? How did it come back?
1: Everest shouldn't be the mountain where you discover that climbing can be dangerous. (laughs) So uh, I'd already lost friends in the mountains.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Unfortunately, twenties, twenties men is a particularly dangerous time in your climbing career. If you're highly talented, you're still young and um, you know, nobody, you know, has died yet. Uh, Men in their twenties get into trouble. So I'd, I'd lost several friends already in the mountains And you have to think about that. Why do you do this? Why is it worth it? What level of risk are you prepared to take? I I, I, I guess I probably would have guessed that in the long term, I'd be back in the mountains. But it was just right at that moment, I I was done with with that that mountain and and that particular expedition.
0: What a a great sentence. Ever should not be the mountain where you discover this may or may not be for me. She may have a, a master's degree, but she has a graduate degree in life through her experiences. And I anxiously wait. What's next for Kathy? Next up, we have Charlie Walker, who was featured on the episode prior to Kathy, episode 90, in June. Charlie is a British adventure writer, public speaker. He specializes in long-distance, human-powered expedition, and has traveled by bicycle, foot, horse, and dugout canoe. He's a fellow of the World Geographical Society and a recipient of the TransGlobe Expedition Trust Grant. His work has been featured in a variety of publications, including The Times, Wanderlust, Travel Mag, Travel Africa, Sidetrack Magazine, as well as BBC Radio 4, and the World Service. In 2013, he was named the Travel Blogger of the Year. His longest expedition was a 43,000-mile bike journey, reaching the furthest cape in each of Europe, Asia, and Africa before returning home. On that journey, he traversed 60 countries, encountering extremes of weather, remoteness, and physical exhaustion during the four and a half years he was away. Wow, so much to talk about. So let's go ahead and bring back guest, Charlie Walker. 43,000 miles, I gotta repeat that one more time. 43,000 miles. How did the planning come about? What were some of just the, the things that you had to do in preparation-wise and in choosing a route, logistics, uh, choosing length of time, bike supplies needed, how much gear and equipment, how, just all the logistics that it took to, for planning before you actually started that endeavor?
2: Sure. Um, well, um, at the risk of sounding glib. <laughs> no, by all means, nothing.
0: glib is great, glib is great. <laughs>
2: basically <laughs> nothing, very little <laughs> planning, very little kit. Um, I decided that I was going to do this long journey. And the only objective I had when I set out was to get from home back to home um via the the furthest point on land in each of the three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Um so that was um that was really as far as that went. The the route would take care of itself later. And you know, when I I, I figured it was gonna take roughly four years. Uh and when you set out to travel across much, you know, the vast majority of the trip was in the developing world. Um, things change a lot over four years, so I couldn't. There was no point in me really getting bogged down with with too much planning because I mean the Arab Spring happened um, nine months after I started. You know that that was. Uh, I was about to say that was entirely unforeseeable, but that's not the case and I'm sure uh, your, your guest from the New York Times who covered West Africa would have had a much better grasp of that coming up. Um, but uh, yeah, very little planning. The bicycle um, was a very simple, it was a hybrid bike technically. It was a Marin Muirwoods, which is a Californian bike brand. Uh, the bike new would have cost about 400 bucks. I got it on ebay secondhand for a hundred dollars i would had it for two or three years by the time i i started this trip um i had a pair of panniers already i had a, a an old one man well not an old i had a one man tent i bought a year earlier that's really as far as kit went you know i took um uh <laughs> four or five paperback books a diary a map or two uh, i left set off with a couple of maps of sort of a map of all of Europe is that the incremental progress across yeah. a, a map of uh, Europe or Asia when you're cycling is, is painstakingly slow, you know, millimeter every couple of days. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did as little planning and prep as I could. I didn't train. In fact, the first day of the trip, I, the first two days, I had to cover 200 miles to get to the ferry port. Um, because the whole thing was on a very low budget and I got in touch with the, um, you know, Britain being an island obviously I had to get to the continent somehow and I got in touch with one of the ferry companies and said hey I'm doing this big bike trip um would you mind giving me a free crossing they said yep sure be here at this time uh, so I had two days to cycle 200 miles at the beginning and I don't think I'd really appreciated quite how hilly the south of England is um, when you're on a heavily laden bicycle the bike with me on it weighed um no, sorry, not with me on it the bike with all the kit on it weighed yeah, probably 45 50 kilograms at the start which is what's that hundred pounds or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, it was, it was a touch and go whether I was actually going to get on that ferry. Um, but doing something like that, there's the beauty of cycle touring is you can just, you can set off and you can pick things up as and when you need them. So when it started getting towards winter, um, you know, my first winter came when I was, um, about to cross Tibet and I was in Nepal. So I just bought, you know, a bigger sleeping bag and, uh, you know, as it turned out fairly insufficient pair of gloves, um, and, and sort of, you know, just pick things up and drop them off as I, as I went along as and when needed.
0: The lasting thing that you said there, I think the most prominent thing that you mentioned is that all you need to do is just figure out kind of how to, how to start. And then Mm. you got to come back. And I think that's so important. A lot of the adventurers that I talk to, they say that in the process of planning, they don't know all the steps and it is it is overcoming that uncertainty, which is maybe the, one of the most key elements of traveling. You don't need to know all the steps. You just need to start. The steps will come as you go. And I I found that I or I find that that is not just applicable to ad, endurance programs or athletics or extreme adventures. It's really anything, right? If you want to write a book, often it's like, well, how do I write this book? I don't know. I don't know all the steps. so well, you don't need to. You just to need start. to start, and I think that's so important to, to remember. I know that probably affected you in so many positive ways. I do have to ask before I move on to the next question: if for someone who's trying to pack light, and you're taking three paperback books, these must have been incredible books, incredible selections. What was the choices of the books that you took with you?
2: Um, I'm trying to remember what I started with. One of them was a book called The Magus by John Fowles. Okay, yeah, um, which was about was sort of a slightly unusual book set in in Greece in the seventies. which a a friend of mine had recommended. Um, I think I probably had about five books to start off with. One was a sort of anthology of exploration. So just lots of different stories by different explorers. Um, I mean, this is 10 years back. I I actually, I can't can't remember what the others were. But I mean, I I picked up and dropped off books whenever I could. And in some places that got increasingly difficult to the point where I think the second time I crossed Iran, I at one point was carrying 10 books. Because someone said, "Oh, we've got these four books and we don't need them." I was like, "I'll take every single one, thank you." I now have a Kindle and you know it's a bit lighter. But uh, there was a there was a luddite element to my trip. You know, I, I was very low tech. I didn't have a phone or a laptop. Um, I you know I had a just a very basic SLR camera, um, I, you know, and a head torch. And that was really it as far as electronics went. So I, I didn't want to burden myself with things that would break or run out or yeah. uh, and also it's just cost, you know, things like that at well, the Luddite, age cost the light at approach is probably
0: the efficient way to go but it does make me think of the book uh, the alchemist because he, as he's traveling in the alchemist one thing he mentions the boy mentioned he says the bigger books were the best to take because they made also for the best pillows and that's always stuck with me when it comes to traveling that al- <laughs> the, the alchemist is one that you got to have so you met a ton of people i mean mm. that's an under, that might be the most understatement you could even say you met a ton of people during a four-year it, 40,000 mile journey around the world, developing nations, developed nations, first world, second world, third world. How are people the same? How are people different?
2: It's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's quite a difficult one to answer succinctly. So um, listeners, uh, strap in. Um, the, the The similarities, the commonalities are basically, I mean, it might sound cheesy, but the concept of humanity, The, the overwhelming. I mean, I was a very robbable, beatable, killable character on this journey? You know, no, on that's the bicycle. first thing I
0: thought when I saw you. I said, that's a killable man right there. That
2: is a... <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think, um, I mean, the biggest danger really was just how, how bad people are at driving in most countries in the world. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the default reaction people had to me generally was to kind of protect and nurture me, to look after me. And that seems to be almost universal um, and definitely universal with regard to that's the default in every every nation I visited, every area I visited. Um, there are, you know, scant few exceptions where I had problems with people or was in, you know, sort of genuine uh, or felt in genuine danger. Um, so that's that's the main um, similarity. People are overwhelmingly good and friendly and, and you know, forthcoming. People would approach me all the time. and And partly, I think, being by oneself you know traveling by yourself you're much more approachable if you're in a pair or a group it's a bit different but people would all the time just come up to me and ask you know hi how are you who are yeah. you where are you going what's up mm. are you hot are you cold Do you need anything <laughs> um and and you know i was constantly being asked to stay in people's homes um I mean, one country that really is an exemplar for hospitality is is Iran, which um, surprises people who don't know yeah. this. But I think it's increasingly known for this yeah. um, this, this overwhelming hospitality. And, and you know, the second time I went to Iran, I was there for three months, and I probably spent of the ninety nights, I probably spent you know seventy of them in people's homes because people were just forever. You know, I was having to turn down hospitality most days because uh, you know I'd wake up in the morning, I'd cycle twenty five miles. I'd stop for a rest by the roadside and someone would pull over and say, hi, how are you? Uh, Stay in our house. And I'd say, well, actually I've got, you know, my visa's running out. I've got to keep going. There's, you know, there's hundreds of miles to go. Um, And so, so that was, that was, that was a particularly friendly place with regard to differences. The differences generally are um, just the sort of the cultural trappings. So whether that's, um, you know, custom, ritual, dress, uh, appearance, language, obviously, you know, faith. These are all, these are all different from place to place. Uh, And beyond that, I suppose um, some countries have more or less uh, reticence. Um, You know, if you travel through Russia, for example, uh, people are extremely friendly, but they can seem sort of surly when you first meet them because they, uh, I mean, the same could be said of, of scandinavia or Brit- all of northern europe to be honest we're we're very we're very friendly people generally um but you know people have to feel at ease to be able to talk to strangers which isn't the case in, in, in many other places uh and then some places uh for example china where people will say oh and they'll walk straight up and like pluck your chest hair because they've not seen it before things like that um so yeah to, to sort of not to um blather on too long but i would say those are the, the the main sort of similarities and differences, speaking in general, that, that struck okay. me.
0: What's top for me, the physical or the mental endurance needed, or mental fitness, physical fitness needed for these endurance trips?
2: Both at different times. Okay. Um, the, I mean, it'd be easy to say. to <laughs> I mean, if you want the the undeniably true but quite boring cliche answer, I'd say when the physical stuff gets difficult, that's when the mental stuff really matters. Um, but sort of a bit deeper than beha- that perhaps the times that I was most at my sort of wit's end um, uh, Mentally were You know exactly the same times when I was most at my wit's end physically, you know If you spend a day or three days or even a week just pedaling into a desert wind um, You know that slows you to four or five miles an hour or something. It's it's absolutely excruciating uh, and you start to kind of lose hope and you think, oh, I just, you know, I want to quit. I'm over this. I'll, you know, when I when I get to the next place that I can get on a bus or a flight, I'm going home, I'm done. I'll take up accounting or whatever it might be. Um, but uh, normally that occurred when you're in the places where you are furthest from uh, escape for want of a better word. Um, so you know the times where you know I've, I'm I'm thirsty or hot, cold, hungry, lonely, desperate, exhausted, whatever it might be. Um, if I then just sort of yeah, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to just get out of the wilderness. Uh, so if I then just sort of stopped and you know pitched my tent, ate some dinner, had a bit of a sleep. Normally the next morning things felt better. So I think the it's quite hard to separate the physical and the mental exactly because yeah, they they yeah. definitely tie together. And when you are you know physically uh, drained it has an effect I mean I imagine that there's there's chemistry to back this up you know you 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 when you're physically drained or depleted you then will lack endorphins or whatever else it might be um, so yeah sorry that again not a, not a great answer no, no, to, no. A, to, a, to, a, to a quite a nuanced question
0: I think it's an accurate answer I think the fact that you mentioned that they are kind of reliant on each other they're not independent I think that's uh, that's and they are there's there's no way around it most people, I feel, if you asked 10 people, I think perhaps two could tell you where the Gobi Desert is or maybe even heard of the Gobi Desert, two out of 10, and that might be generous. For you, where did the idea of the Gobi Desert come from?
2: Um, so the, the, the first time I went there was... Um, so in my first year of university, I, uh, I, was, I joined a theater group. Um, zany Zany Little Theatre Group. Where did you where
0: where did you attend university? Uh,
2: New, Newcastle. Oh, okay. Um, in okay. the northeast of England, um, I joined this theatre group, and one of the directors of a, of a play that I was in in the first year, um, I I sort of had I was a bit besotted with, uh, and she told me how she had um, she had been to uh, uh, China and Mongolia over a previous summer. Um, and I thought, well, they sound like nice places. And I thought, if I go there, then maybe later I'll have something to talk to her about. So I so I booked and 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 planned to go. And then I thought, well, I've got to get from Beijing to Mongolia. Why not cycle? You know, I had this 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 bike, and I'd, the previous year had done this this trip in the Himalayas. And so I thought I'd cycle. Uh, and then the Gobi is just on the way. Really, um, it didn't. Uh, the, go- I mean, the, got, the
0: Gobi's yeah. on the way. I like that. Just, well, the go- it's so, yeah, I mean, it's so you got, simple and I
2: love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you got to, you've got yeah, you got, you know, got across yeah. cross the, yeah. the Great Wall and the Gobi to get. Why the um, Gobi?
0: Well, it was one. on the way and I just thought, eh, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose that's straying into that because it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Mallory, speaking of of yeah. Everest in the 20s, it, that, 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 as it happened, that trip didn't all go that well. To- well, I went to plan, I got across the Gobi, but about 10 days before leaving the UK, I, um, and I, I, to this day, don't know how, but at, at a party i drunkenly injured myself and I woke up in the morning, uh, had to go to hospital and, and I'd snapped one of my quadriceps, um, not, not torn, but clean snapped. Mm. I was on crutches for, 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 you know, the 10 days leading up to going to the airport and then I sort of hobbled onto the plane, put this bike in a box on the plane, got to the other end, was just about able to sort of limp, but then my first night in Beijing I tripped over. Um, and I, to qualify this, I was a student, so drinking was a bit more of a... Um, uh, a sort of uh, part of my life then than it is now. But I tripped over and broke my wrist on that first night. Um, so two weeks later, still with a bad leg, I, I cut the cast off my hand with a hacksaw and bandaged my wrist up and started cycling. And so it was, it was <laughs> quite a portentous start to the trip, which made me then go on to plan this, this sort of big, longer uh, journey. Um, and when it came to crossing the Gobi the second time around, again, I was in China. I wanted to go back to Mongolia. During the long journey, uh, I had to cross the Gobi. It was there, uh, but because I'd already cycled it, that time I chose to, to walk because yeah. it just sounded like a nice change of pace, um, yeah. slow things down a bit.
0: Well, you know, they say drunken words are sober thoughts. So I think subconsciously those drunken actions was your body telling you, yeah, let's stay home. Let's not go on this trip. I think that was your body saying, you know, hey, let's fall over right now so we don't have to walk, bike across the Gobi. Your pictures are, are, are gorgeous uh, as far as on your trips on the Gobi. And it's just an, an amazing and desolate land and incredible. And I, I, I admire you for going there, not once, uh, but twice. I actually recently finished reading a book on the Congo. Shout out to Michael Crichton, one of my heroes. Uh, what were some of your mem- favorite memories of cruising down the Congo in a canoe? And then with that, obviously, when you think con- uh, the Congo, you think animals, you think wild animals, you think, and I think hippo- hippopotami. So, what were some of the standout animals that you saw?
2: Um, well, the Congo—I um, mean, the, the Lulua River, the tributary of the Congo that, yeah. that um, I was canoeing down—that stands out in my memory for perhaps two reasons. One is two—you know—broad reasons. One is that it was it was a really outlandish, dangerous thing to do. Um, I mean, the river. Which
0: I'm sensing a theme here, by the
2: way. <laughs> <laughs> this more so than the others. Yeah. Um, yeah uh the 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 river was sort of beset with with rapids and and waterfalls Mm -hmm. and um that you know they have crocodiles there are hippos Mm -hmm. um so that that, i mean that's one and it turned into you know it was it was it was very sort of stressful fraught time but the the other reason is that um for that um paddle and for the the three months that i that i crossed the drc Mm -hmm. i had uh, a companion um this guy archie leeming um a scottish a uh, photographer um, who I met when I was in Cairo, he was motorcycling down from Edinburgh to to Cape town and I was on my bike, but um, he was with a couple of friends and I kept catching up with him because they were taking more kind of uh, wiggly routes than I was. Um, but down in Cape town, we, you know, we had a chat and and, and decided oh, maybe, uh, he, he had moved. He'd still lives in Cape Town. Uh, we decided, well, maybe we'll try and cross the Congo together. So we, we, we plan to, to try and get hold of a pirog or, or a dugout canoe, the traditional boats that the, uh, the Congolese use, which is just a tree trunk with trunk with the inside scooped out. Yeah. And they're quite, uh, I mean, they're sturdy, but they're not very maneuverable. They're quite heavy. They sit very low in the water so they can be sunk very easily. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah having, having after by that point four years i've been on you know i've been away uh, having suddenly a, a, a you know, sort of long longer term um, you know, friend along with me on the journey was was fantastic um, but uh, back to your question that animals on the way down um, we didn't see a great deal of wildlife um, we we only saw one crocodile, but it was dead um, Some. Uh, that the people who had just killed it were were sort of celebrating and dancing and waving their machetes around on the riverbank. But that thing was five meters long, so, you know, a big, big Nile crocodile. Um, And uh, we heard the hippos at night. They sort of honk um, in in the water, sort of a grunting. um, But thankfully, we didn't see any of those. Well, well, one night, actually, um, in Zambia, before we crossed into congo a, a hippo walked between our two tents two little one-man tents with perhaps a meter and a half between them and this hippo just strode through between them um which i, I slept right through archie um didn't sleep for three nights afterwards i think um but uh, beyond that just i mean there were plenty of uh, you know the river was quite well stocked with fish uh, mostly catfish i think and the people living along the river completely lived off fish uh, that was pretty much all they had in their diet. And resultantly, that few of them are over five feet. They're, they're not pygmies. They, they Were they to live elsewhere yeah. with a different diet, they'd be quite tall. But, um, but uh, in that area, people really have quite a depleted um, sort of nutritional uh, makeup. But yeah, I mean, there, there, there were lots of birds around. I'm not much of a twitcher, so I don't really uh, know what's what when it comes to birds. Uh, we didn't see, uh, you know, cats, big cats in, in the Congo, um, in other parts of Africa, sure.
0: Well, the pictures of the DRC again are just fantastic, and it's probably actually a, a great thing that you did not see more crocodiles. Uh, it's probably a, it's probably a great thing because I think they were seeing they saw you. That's for sure. Uh,
2: <laughs> and, yeah. and I would say to any listeners, um, Archie's photography is, is absolutely stunning. His um, Instagram account is, I think, at Archie Leeming. Uh Very worth following um, recently. I think he's been posting uh, pictures from a motorbike trip along the Karakoram Highway from Pakistan to China. Um, Archie is a, is a, a, has a really great eye for, for photography.
0: What an incredible human. For more information, be sure to check him out at cwexplore.com. And for Cathy O'Dowd, just visit CathyO'Dowd.com. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring two hundred episodes from the Any Given Runway Show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story, each person a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.